So then, from Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear, and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to to win their favour when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God, from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you are serving the Lord, not men. Because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. So, here goes with the poison talus. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I was thinking where, where to start and where to go with this. And this is the title, I guess, for this sermon. Have you any idea how loved you are? This is certainly something that we are trying to instill in our children, a sense of identity that is born out of a knowledge of just how loved they are. And it's been a busy week for us in the Fisher House. Uh, We have twins, many of you know, Ben and Amy, and they are preparing to go to secondary school in September. 
So uh, this week, uh, on Thursday, we were faced with double induction days and simultaneous parents' evenings, which was an interesting challenge. At Millet, uh, it was really fascinating, actually, to notice the cultural difference between the visit to one school and the other, particularly when they came in such quick succession. So at Millet, after we were treated to a classical music concert by some of the Year 7s, we were treated to a fashion show uh, of girls demonstrating what the acceptable uniform was for summer, for winter, and various sports. The, the takeaway message for me was there was quantities of uniform and it seemed to be quite expensive. Um, the head teacher was declaring happily that getting this right meant that when the girls put the uniform on, they felt like they belonged to Millet. So at Forest, uh, Ben will be part of the Benson community. I don't know yet whether that's good or bad. Uh, and so we need to be very sure, we had it explained to us, that we have to buy the correct bits of kit. Uh, they have different colours for the different houses. Uh, so Ben's all have to have red logos on them so that he can be identified very clearly. And for both schools, this seems to be a really big deal, the identity that comes from wearing the uniform. Um, uh, identity was very much a theme that was emphasised on Thursday, as was authority. It seemed uh, to both schools that the children knew very clearly who they were and who was in charge. So at both schools, we were shown the different systems uh, for rewards and punishments. It was explained how the children will earn these. And again, at, at Millet, it was quite complicated. It was all written down. It was very beautifully presented. A little bit more straightforward at Forest. I don't know whether I should be reassured or worried by this. Boys, tell me. Uh, I was told that the three golden rules at Forest, no punching, <laughs> be nice to each other, and don't swear at the teachers. So it kind of sets the tone, doesn't it? Um, so respect for the teachers and the fellow pupils was very much um, emphasised. The message was clear at both schools. The rules matter, and there are consequences for breaking them. It was also very clear that there's a hierarchy in secondary school with the head teachers on a stage, uh, generally accompanied by some teachers and some beautiful-looking prefects. Uh, running through the order, I think the year, new incoming Year 7s were very clear. They were at the bottom of the hierarchy of secondary school. And authority and identity are really important themes, I think, for all of us, even for those of us maybe for whom secondary school is a distant memory. In our journey through Ephesians, we've learned much already about God's vision and purpose for the church, uh, how as individuals we can be reconciled to God, and how as a body of believers we can be reconciled to one another. And Ephesians also gives us clues about how we live that calling out in the day to day. So tonight's passage about wives and husbands sits within that context. It's instructions for an early church about how to live distinct and holy lives. The introductory verse, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This book and this passage is primarily about how God loves the church and about how the church should be in submission to God. It is about how God is the ultimate authority and it's about how the church finds its identity in being in submission and being loved by him. Many people struggle with this passage 
I have to say, I didn't think I was one of them until I tried to prepare the sermon on it. Um, It's something I've never really had a problem with. Yes, it's about marriage and about the relationship between husbands and wives, and we will come back to that. But it's about a lot more, too. Let's start with the idea that it's about these themes. It's about authority and about identity. It's about knowing who you are and who's in charge. Our society has very strong things to say about authority and identity, and I would suggest that living authentic Christian lives should turn these assumptions upside down. For my work, I have to have various online profiles, um, probably more than somewhere between too many and not enough. I'm never quite sure which ones are most important. Uh, I'm currently on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and on Instagram. You can go find me there if you like. Um, So each of these requires me to have a headshot and a very short biography to say a little bit about who I am and who I work for. Uh, And basically all these things require me to capture the essence of who I am in the size of a smartphone screen, which is a tricky challenge. This question, who am I and who's in charge? Society would tell us that we are in complete control of our own identity and destiny, that we can be whoever we want to be, and that our own happiness is the ultimate goal. Particularly for young women, the current narrative is one that prizes achievement and independence. And for our young people, I think, there is a really complicated and confusing mix of messages. So on the one hand, there's this really humanist ideal that prevails, that you are totally in control of your own identity and that your destiny, you can choose to be whatever or whoever you want without reference to anyone or anything else. But yet, there's this insatiable pack attitude where the pressure to conform, to be like everyone else, to have the same stuff, to dress, to look, to speak the same as your peers, kind of squashes out every ounce of individuality. And into this, I think God speaks about identity. And I think it's a message that liberates us from the isolation of having to make our own way and also from the pressure to conform. What God says about your identity is this. Have you any idea how loved you are? (laughs) This is the song that God sings over us individually, but also over the church. This is the song that is woven through scripture and that we read it here in Ephesians. It is a song of love, so complete and so compelling that Jesus was the price that was paid for its fulfillment. Christ is so in love with the church that he gave himself up for us and so satisfied with us that he considers us an adequate reward for his suffering. But do we really get this? Do you have any idea how loved you are? As an individual, do you know deep in your bones how loved you are by the maker of the universe? And as a church... Do we feel the reality of his love? I saw a Facebook post from a friend yesterday that said this, I am a bespoke, hand-created, limited edition of God, lovingly signed by the creator himself with the saviour's blood. How true, how wonderful. And how revolutionary it would be if we lived like we really believed this. 
The Ephesians passage speaks about the relationship between a husband and a wife. And and through these illustrations, uh, I think several purposes are served. So firstly, there's the obvious stuff about husbands and wives, and I'll come to that, I promise. Um, Secondly, it also tells us about the relationship between Christ and the church. And thirdly, I think it points to the possibility that in our relationships with one another, we witness to the world. So let's, let's have a go at working through those. So firstly, there's the stuff about the relationship between husband and wives. And to distract you from the poison chalice, here's a picture. Oh. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> so I was the first of my group of friends, uh, mostly non-Christian female friends, I was the first to get married. Uh, most of them thought I was too young to make this commitment. Um, I wasn't planning on having a hen night, but they decided they would throw one for me. Uh, to be honest, the point of what, which seemed to mostly be to talk me out of getting married, but, you know, I, I, I didn't go with their advice. So their advice, rather than marriage, was just to move in with John and just see how it went. Uh, they were particularly horrified that I was planning to include the promise to honour and obey in my vows. They found this idea that I was about to give up my identity to another offensive, actually. My boss at the time felt something similar, but expressed it differently. When he found I was going to change my surname, he came, found me, sought me out and said, but Claire, this is terrible. How will anyone know who you are? Yes, I think think I've managed. I've managed for people to figure out who I am. And I agree in a way. Surrendering yourself to another human and allowing them control over you is a terrifying prospect. Trusting another person to know what's best, to provide for you, to make decisions that affect your life is scary. The truth, though, is I'm not sure any person would be capable of that, and I'm certainly sure that I wouldn't really be capable of that myself. I'm not sure I really know what's best. I'm not sure I'm completely capable of providing for myself or making the right decisions in every situation. In a society that prizes independence and individuality, giving up your identity to somebody else just feels wrong. And I think this is where God turns our society's logic upside down. Because he says, if you give yourself up, you don't become less, you become more. And this isn't just about women submitting to men, it's about Christians submitting to God. And fundamentally, the Christian faith is about saying, I'm not in control. There is authority greater than me. And the exciting thing about the Christian faith is that it's not an unknown or unnamed power, but God who loves us, and a God that can be known and a God that makes himself known. And the Christian faith is about happily, willingly choosing to give control of yourself to him. And of course, in this, as in all things, we follow the example of Christ, who did just the same. He gave up all authority and control on the cross and laid down his life for us. I think that's enough. Think about that. (laughs) I've mentioned before, I didn't grow up in a Christian household. Coming to faith as a teenager, I had to learn what it meant to be part of a Christian family. My initial exposure to a Christian household was at university. uh, And then later, I bought a flat with a Christian friend before finally having the opportunity to establish my own Christian household and family. And I think I'm still very much making it up as I go along. 
My experience is, though, that the difference really is about authority. When it comes down to it, who's in charge? Growing up, I was in no doubt that my dad was in charge. He controlled most elements of our family life, and he did clearly feel the burden of having to provide for us all. But what I learned as living part of a Christian household at university was about a different authority. God was in charge. The way we dealt with each other was in response to our individual relationships with God. We opened our house, we shared our food, we supported and we encouraged one another because apparently that's how Christians live together. For me, this was a revelation. Actually, it felt like freedom. Compared to the previous year where I was in halls and completely and utterly self-reliant, there was a security in this new household and such acceptance. I found that godly authority actually brought freedom. And it was there I became aware of my own Christian identity and learned what it meant to function as part of a body of believers. Many of you know Amy. She's, she's a feisty 11-year-old. She was no less feisty when she was very small. <clears throat> she was very mini. But she made up for her tininess uh, with a personality, let's say, that demanded attention. And for a while, she was under the illusion that she was in charge of our family. Uh, <laughs> we put her on a programme. We called it the Who's in Charge programme. And it, it went something like this. We'd ask Amy, who's in charge? And she would say, not me. And it was mean, but, you know, it was necessary. And if you asked Amy who's in charge, she would say, God, then Daddy, then Mummy. And a bit like being a year seven, I think they realised they're at the bottom of the pile. And this is what I was trying to explain to my friends before I got married, that I wasn't just promising to honour and obey my husband. I was establishing a household where God was in charge. I was promising to honour and obey him, and I was marrying someone who was very clear that his role was to honour and obey God. And I think there's a side point there about marrying the right person, which is probably a bit too delicate to go into. But I think it's God who sets the rules, God who provides for us, and God who steers our decisions. And I believe that God is a God of order. It was his word that spoke life into chaos. We sang it this morning, uh, I love those words, take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of your peace. And I think in some relationships you see this power struggle going on, but there shouldn't be a need to fight for a place in your family. Submission to love shouldn't feel like weakness or vulnerability. You should be able to be secure in your identity and the knowledge of that security. And I think this passage shows us how peaceful order can be established within families. The husband loves his wife completely, perfectly, with care and consideration, and the wife responds with submission. That doesn't diminish or reduce her. Indeed, the same passage describes two people becoming one flesh, adjoining where the parts are indistinguishable and indivisible. And of course, whenever two humans are involved, that might be less than perfect. I'm sure perfect submission is just as hard to achieve as perfect love, so probably in the human relationships, a healthy dose of forgiveness and optimism is necessary on both sides. However, I think the standard is important for what should set Christian families and friendships and communities apart is their shared submission to God's authority. So what do we learn about Christ and the church? 
some people find this passage tricky because they find this model of marriage old-fashioned. But I think this misses just how revolutionary and how liberating this way of relating to God would have been to the early church. So no longer is the relationship one of fear and trembling. No longer do we see a distant and far-off God who is quick to judge and easily angered. There's a picture of an intimate and loving relationship where perfect love makes the one who is loved perfect and whole. We've heard this description already from 1 Corinthians 13 of love, but hear it again as a description of how Christ deals with the church. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is what it looks like to be in relationship with God since the curtain was torn in two. Where gazing on the face of God is not only allowed, but actually it transforms us, it brings our salvation, it brings our completeness. In my own wedding ceremony, the part where my father gave me away was hugely significant. A bit like a baptism, it was a symbol of leaving your past behind and committing to a new future. It was a public declaration that you are changed and you're going to commit to living in a way consistent with that change. For this reason, Ephesians says, a man will leave his father and mother and will be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, writes Paul. But I am talking about Christ and the church. Wow. Could this be the ultimate mind-blowing implication of incarnation? That Christ leaves his father in heaven to become human and that we come to understand the fulfillment of that. Christ and the church united for eternity. As I was mulling that over, I, I checked the particular bit of theology with my husband uh, and he wisely says, it's probably true, but it's a profound mystery, so don't worry about it too much. So in submission to that advice, we're going to leave that there and move on. Ephesians is also a book about reconciliation of individuals to God and to each other in the body of the church. And it calls us to live holy lives worthy of our calling. In a world that is broken, where people are often marked by selfish, more than selfless love. Our relationships are an important part of our witness. And this Ephesians reading is calling Christians to use marriage and all relationships as a model that helps testify to the world about a relationship between God and the church. God's love for the church is transformational. It takes the broken and it makes it whole. It takes the sinful and the blemished and it makes it clean and perfect. And because of this transformational love, it is appropriate that the church submits itself to the authority of Christ. Of course we realise that human relationships can only ever be imperfect reflections of this truth. But we should aim to witness to a broken world with whole relationships where love is what transforms us and where submission isn't weakness but a source of strength. When I was reading through this passage, one bit really hit me, verse 29. After all, says Paul, clearly a very confident man, no one ever hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it. And I wondered, is this the problem? 
For many young people, and indeed for many of us, maybe we do hate our own bodies. We're not comfortable in our own skin. We're not sure of our own value. We feel like outsiders. We feel rejected, unworthy, incomplete. Many of us don't feed or care for our bodies properly. In this passage about husbands and wives, there is a beautiful image of the church as Christ's bride. Beautiful, radiant, perfect, holy. You saw a picture of me on my wedding day. This is a hard thing to admit, but the truth is I didn't feel beautiful that day. I hadn't quite realised what it meant to be loved properly, to be accepted or to be cherished. And to be honest, I didn't really feel worth the fuss that was made on that day. And I felt jealous the whole way through of the brides that I saw in the magazines who looked so radiant. In the Chronicles of Narnia, in the film, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, there's a beautiful image where Lucy finds the book of incarnations, incantations and she's tempted by her desire to become more beautiful. She speaks forth this spell and she looks into a mirror and she sees herself transformed into the, her sister who she thinks is more beautiful than her. However, by being transformed, Lucy discovers that she never really existed. And as Lucy stands before the mirror horrified, Aslan appears. And they have this conversation. Lucy says Aslan. Aslan, she replies. What have you done, child? I don't know. It was awful. I didn't mean to choose all that, Lucy answered. I just wanted to be beautiful. That's all. Aslan tells her, you wished away yourself and with it much more. You doubt your value, says Aslan. Don't run from who you are. Aslan might as well have said to Lucy, do you have any idea how loved you are? And this is certainly the message that's on my heart for each of us this evening and for our church. The words of acceptance from Ephesians, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. The church is not perfect through its own efforts. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water and through the word to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you have any idea how loved you are? This love is transformational. Do you know how loved the church is? Do you know your identity as a cherished and chosen one? Do you feel how Christ gazes at you with love like a bridegroom on a wedding day? Do you know that all the brokenness is mended by the power of that gaze? Do you know that every blemish is made clean by the reality of his love? I pray that, we I pray that you do. I pray that we can all know this. Because understanding just how loved we are is at the core of our identity as Christians. The enemy would try to undermine our confidence in our identity and tempt us to challenge God's authority. So I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, this church and every individual within it would know God's intimate healing power and be comfortable in submitting to his authority so that we might live lives that testify to a hurting world of the power of his love. Amen. So we close by singing, and can it be?